I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Then some Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and they put this question to him. Master, Moses prescribed for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man must marry the widow to raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a wife and then died leaving no children. The second married the widow and he too died leaving no children. With the third it was the same and none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman herself died. Now at the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be since she had been married to all seven? And so some Sadducees came up to Jesus and tried to catch him with this trick question. That according to the law of Moses, if any man died without leaving children, his brother had to marry the widow in order to leave descendants to his brother. And he had to give the name of the dead man to the first of his sons. And so the Sadducees want to make any belief in the resurrection of the dead appear ridiculous. They therefore invent a clever hypothesis. If a woman marries seven times, having left, been left a widow by seven brothers in succession, whose wife will she be in heaven? Our Lord answers them in a way that shows the superficiality of their thinking. Jesus said to them, surely the reason why you are wrong is that you understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But when they rise from the dead, men and women do not marry. No, they are like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising again, have you never read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are very much mistaken. And so by his reply, our Lord reaffirms the truth of the resurrection of the dead. He takes a number of passages from the Old Testament and he expounds on the properties of risen bodies. He refutes all the objections brought forward by the Sadducees. He reproaches them for their ignorance of the scriptures and for not acknowledging the power of God. For this truth had already been firmly asserted in what was revealed. Isaiah had prophesied, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, 
and of the land of the shades you will let it fall. The mother of the Maccabees encouraged her sons at the moment of their martyrdom, reminding them of the words of scripture. The creator of the world, it says, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. And for Job, this same truth was to be the consolation of his unhappy days. We're told in the book of Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. Then from my flesh I shall see God. We have to try and foster the virtue of hope in our souls. And in particular, the hope of seeing God. Those in love try to see each other. St. Joseph Maria, in one of his writings, says, People in love have eyes only for their love. That's logical, isn't it? The human heart feels this need. I would be lying if I denied my eagerness to contemplate the face of Jesus Christ. I will seek your countenance, O Lord. And in an ancient encyclical, it says, this desire will be satisfied if we remain faithful. Because God's concern for his human creatures has ensured the resurrection of the flesh. A truth which constitutes one of the fundamental articles of the creed. And in 1979, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith said in a document, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain, says St. Paul. The church believes in the resurrection of the dead and understands that the resurrection refers to the whole man. In the Council of Toledo, in the seventh century, said the magisterium has repeated on numerous occasions that it is a question of the resurrection of the same body as we had during our passage on earth. In this flesh in which we live, subsist and move. Interesting how the church notes that we will get back our own body when we rise from the dead. We won't get back somebody else's. Because of this, <clears throat> one document says, the two formulae, resurrection of the dead and resurrection of the flesh are complementary expressions from one and the same tradition of the early church. And both modes of expression can continue to be used. The liturgy repeats this consoling truth on many occasions. We're told in one of the Eucharistic prayers, in him, in Christ, the hope of our resurrection has dawned. And though we are saddened by the certainty of dying, he consoles us with the promise of eternal life to come. 
And in the preface for the dead, it says, for those who are faithful to you, Lord, life is transformed, not taken away. And when our dwelling here on earth decays, there is waiting for us our eternal home in heaven. So God awaits us forever in his glory. Those who count solely on this world can only look forward to a great sadness. Whereas when we know that it will be ourselves, soul and body, who with the help of grace will live eternally with Jesus Christ, with the angels, with the saints, giving praise to the most holy trinity, well, that brings great joy. When we are grieved by the death of a loved one, or we're with mourners who have lost a member of their family, we can try to manifest to them as to ourselves those truths that fill us with hope and consolation. Life does not end here below on earth. We are going forward to meet God in eternal life. I was involved once in a family that was losing a 19-year-old girl, youngest of the family, through leukemia. She was in ICU. The doctors had said it was time to turn off the machines. The end had come. And the parents, or one of them, couldn't bring themselves to give that decision to turn off the machine. And so a family conference was called and I was brought in to mediate. And there was a moment when I said to the parents, look, what else does this world have to offer your daughter? ICUs and drips and respirators and heart monitors. This world has nothing else to offer your daughter. But what is waiting for her? Eternal happiness. I was very grateful to the Holy Spirit for that inspiration at that particular moment. It made me see how consoling the eternal truths of our faith can be in certain difficult moments. And so after death, each soul awaits the resurrection of its own body, with which for all eternity, it will be in heaven close to God or in hell far away from him. And theologians say that we will get back our own body in its most perfect state. So whatever state our body may have been when we were 33 or 25 or 72 or whatever it is, we'll get back all our hair, we'll get back our skin in good shape. We look all look very well in heaven. Another thing to look forward to. One Theologian says, in heaven our bodies will have different characteristics. But they will continue to be bodies and they will occupy a particular place. In just the same way as the glorious body of Christ and that of our Lady do. We do not know where this place is or what it looks like. Earth, as we know, will be transfigured. God's reward will come upon the glorious body, making it immortal. For mortality is a sign of sin, and creation was submitted to mortality 
as a result of the guilt of sin. Everything that threatens or is inimical to life will disappear. Then John affirms in the Apocalypse that those who rise unto glory shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. The sufferings listed in the Apocalypse were the ones that caused great affliction to the people of Israel as they crossed through the desert. We're told the scorching rays of the sun fell on them like darts. They rapidly became exhausted and the dry desert wind consumed their strength. Those very tribulations are a symbol of the sufferings that the new people of God, the church, will have to undergo for as long as our pilgrimage towards her final home shall last. Gaudium et Spes of the Second Vatican Council says, faith and hope in the glorification of our body will call us to give it the value and respect due to it. Man is obliged to regard his body as good and hold it in honour since God has created it and will raise it up on the last day. The cult that we see that's often given to the body in modern culture is far removed from this just evaluation. And so we have a duty to look after our body, to use the opportune means of avoiding idleness, suffering, hunger, but without forgetting that it has to rise again on the last day. Pope St. John Paul has given us the beautiful teaching of the theology of the body that helps us to see God in the human body and explains that the human body has been created to love. What matters is that it should rise in order to go to heaven, not to hell. And so over and above our health, there's the loving acceptance of God's will concerning our lives. We shouldn't have a disproportionate concern for our physical well-being. This means that when we're told by the doctor we have to do something, well, we should try and do it. Or if we have to take these tablets, well, let me take these tablets, even if for the rest of our life. Not such a big thing. It doesn't really matter. So we are focused on higher things because we know this world is passing. We need to know how to put any pains and discomforts that we may suffer to supernatural use. At the same time as we serenely use the ordinary means of avoiding them. I read somewhere once of a, an elderly lady saying that she was in some pain. She said, I'm in some pain, but I don't have to be one. Well, that's a good attitude to have. To be able to take in our stride 
and to the pains or discomforts that God may send us without making a big fuss out of them. And if we manage to do this, well, then we'll not lose our peace and our joy. As we would if we were to put our hearts into merely relative and transitory things. Things only reach their final fullness in the glory of heaven. And so one writer says we should not forget for a moment what it is we are travelling towards. We should not forget the true value of the things that cause us so much concern. Our goal is heaven. To be with Christ's soul and body is what God created us for. This is why here on earth, our last word, it can only be a smile, a merry song. On the other side, our Lord is waiting for us with his hands held out in a welcoming gesture. Although there's a great difference between the earthly body and the transfigured body, there's still a close relationship between them. It's a dogma of our faith that the risen body is identical in species and number to the earthly body. Theologians say that in heaven we will get back all we need for the proper functioning of our body. We won't get back every bit of blood we may have left on rugby pitches and soccer hockey pitches and volleyball pitches, uh, or the little cuts and bruises, but we'll get back what's necessary for the integrity of the body. Taking as its basis the nature of the soul, in several passages of Holy Scripture, Christian doctrine shows the fittingness of the resurrection of one's own body and of its new union with the soul. And this is so because the soul is only a part of man. And while it's separated from the body, it can't enjoy a happiness as complete and as fulfilled as that which will be possessed by the whole person. And also the soul was created to be united to a body. An ultimate separation would violate the way of being proper to it. But a far more important reason is that it is more in conformity with divine wisdom, justice and mercy. That souls should be united once more with their bodies. So that both together, the whole person, who is not only soul, our only body, may share in the prize or the punishment merited during this passage through this life on earth. It is our faith that the soul immediately after death receives its reward or punishment while waiting for the moment of the resurrection of the body. In the light of the church's teaching, we can observe a greater depth, in greater depth that the body is not a mere instrument of the soul, 
although it is from the soul that it receives its capacity to act, and through this to contribute to the existence and development of the person. Through his body, the person finds themselves in contact with earthly reality, which they have to dominate, work upon, and sanctify, because God has willed it. Through his body, man can communicate with others and work with them to build up and develop the social community. We shouldn't forget either that through the body, man receives the grace of the sacraments. And so St. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We are men and women of flesh and blood. Grace exercises its influence on the body as well. Divinizing it in a certain way. In anticipation of the glorious resurrection. It will greatly help us to live with the dignity and bearing of a follower of Christ. If we consider frequently that this body of ours, now a temple of the Holy Spirit, so long as we are in a state of grace, is destined by God to be glorified. Sacred Scripture teaches us that death was not part of God's original plan for mankind. It is a consequence of the sin of our first parents. Through his resurrection, Christ demonstrated his power over death. God our Father, we're told, by raising Christ your Son, you conquered the power of death and opened for us the way to eternal life. This is part of the liturgy of the church. And so with his resurrection, Christ has robbed death of its sting. He has made his death an act of redemption. It's through him and with him and in him that our bodies will rise again on the last day. They will be united with our souls. Which we, if we have been faithful, will have been given glory to God since the time of our death, if there was no need for purification. To resurrect means to lift up something that has fallen, to bring again to life that which was dead, to restore to life that which has succumbed to dust. The church has always taught that the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith. She's also consistently believed in the resurrection of our physical bodies in which we live, subsist and move. 
the soul will then be reunited with its proper body. The magisterium has stated quite, quite precisely, that men and women will be resurrected in their own physical bodies. When we think about these teachings, well, this can help us to grasp the great dignity of each person, a dignity which is distinct and superior to that of any other being in creation. The goats and the cows and the lions and the tigers, they will not rise again. Man not only has free will, but he is the divine masterpiece, said Saint Cyril of Jerusalem, made in the image and likeness of his creator, and gifted with an immortal soul by divine gift. Man is superior to all other creatures because he can be a temple of the Holy Spirit as long as he is in the state of grace. St. Paul insisted on this with the early Christians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? But you have from God, he says. And so our bodies are not some kind of prison for our souls. We look forward, St. Paul says, to the redemption of our bodies. They are not encumbrances which we drag about with us. They are first fruits of eternity entrusted to our keeping. The soul and body belong to one another in a natural relationship. God made the one for the other. And so St. Cyril of Jerusalem exhorts us, respect your body, since it is your good fortune to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not stain your body. And if by chance you have stained it, purify it right away through penance. Clean it while you still have time. The exalted dignity of man was present from the moment of creation. It acquired full expression with the incarnation of the word. Each and every person has been included in the mystery of redemption, said St. John Paul. And with each one, Christ has united himself forever through this mystery. Every person comes into the world through being conceived in their mother's womb and being born of their mother. And precisely an account of the mystery of the redemption is entrusted to the solicitude of the church. Her solicitude is about the whole man and is focused on him in an altogether special manner. The object of her care is man in his unique, unrepeatable human reality, which keeps intact the image and likeness of God himself. And Thomas teaches that our divine filiation, commenced in the soul through grace, would be consummated by the glorification of the body. 
just as our soul has been redeemed from sin, so too our body will be redeemed from the corruption of death. So we can turn to Our Lady and ask her that we might get great joy and consolation from these beautiful truths and help to spread that joy and consolation to many other people around us so that they also can look forward with peace and joy to the eternal wedding feast. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.